I'd like you to find Hebrews chapter 6. You can find the outline in your bulletin. You can follow along with what we're going to discuss. The long-awaited Hebrews 6. Some of you have been waiting in eager anticipation. Some of you have no idea what you stumbled into with Hebrews 6. Either way, we're going to try to make sense of this chapter, and we're going to begin by putting it in the context of the book of Hebrews as a whole. And so this is a familiar statement to those of you who have been around the last few weeks. Why was the book of Hebrews written? Well, there's sort of twin purposes, a a negative purpose and a positive purpose. Negatively, the book of Hebrews was written to warn Christ followers about the danger of falling away from Jesus. And we're going to deal with that issue explicitly here in Hebrews 6. Positively, the book of Hebrews was written to encourage Christians to persevere in the faith. Don't stop following Jesus. That's sort of the negative warning. Keep following Jesus to the very end. That's the positive encouragement. Both of those ideas take center stage in Hebrews chapter 6. Now, I do want to acknowledge this is a a debated chapter. One of the Bible commentaries I read this week is written by a guy named George Guthrie. And George Guthrie, just at the beginning of his chapter on Hebrews 6, says, this is the most debated chapter, the most debated passage in the book of Hebrews, which is one of the most debated books in all of the New Testament. And he goes on to say, this might be one of the most controversial, if you want to use that word, controversial passages in the entire New Testament, right? There's some things in the scriptures that when you read them and you approach them, they're just sort of very plain. You might say the cookies are on the lowest shelf. And there's other things that you come to in the Bible, and this chapter is one of them, that requires careful thought. And on first glance, you may say, I don't know how this fits with that and and how to understand it all. We're going to try to sort through some of that this morning. And I just want to say one more thing in addition to what Mr. Guthrie says about the, the controversy surrounding this passage. I'd just like us to remember as a church family that it is possible, despite what you see all around you in society, it is possible to disagree without being disagreeable. It's possible. I know that you don't see that much on social media. I know that the talking heads on the favorite news channel you have don't do that very well. But it is possible as a church family coming to this passage to say, we want to submit our lives, our minds, our hearts, our everything to the authority of God's word. We want to make sense of what this says. Look, when I read through and studied this week, I came across no less than 10 different views about how to sort through Hebrews chapter 6. And so I may say some things that you're not quite sure about, and you may hold to some positions that I'm not quite sure about. And what I'm saying to you is if you have questions, if you have things that you're just not setting right with you, I'm more than happy to visit with you about those things, to talk about those things, to have a friendly conversation about those things. And it is possible, as we come to a passage where people disagree, it is possible to disagree without being disagreeable. But our goal is to say, what does the Scripture say? And to make sense of it as best we can this morning. So, we are a Baptist church. Many of us, most of us in the Baptist tradition, are familiar with the phrase, once saved, always saved. Okay? I want you to know that when you cut me, I bleed Baptist. Okay? I am Baptist. I'm not embarrassed of that. I'm not ashamed of that. I I don't hide from that or run from that. Those are my convictions. 
I also want you to understand that I'm not crazy about this phrase. I'm just not crazy about it. And it's not so much that I disagree with the sentiment or with the idea that's trying to be communicated in once saved, always saved. Here's the reason I think the, the catchphrase is a little bit problematic. If people, Christians in the United States, if they become confused about how a person is saved or what it means to be saved, if there's confusion on this question of saved, then the once and the always part become very problematic. If you're not square on a biblical view of what salvation is and how it, uh, how it comes to realization in your life, then this idea of once and always really leads people down some strange paths. And so I'm just telling you, I'm not scratching it from Baptist history. I'm not telling you never to say it. I'm just telling you I'm not thrilled with the phrase. I try not to use the phrase too much. And I think historically there's some theologians who can help us who have thrown out some ideas that are a little bit more helpful. And so historically, theologians have preferred to talk about twin ideas. One is the perseverance of the saints. The other is the preservation of the saints. And when you hear about saints, we're not talking about super, super holy people. We're using saints in the New Testament sense of believers, those who are followers of Jesus Christ. And the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints says that those who are truly believers in Jesus Christ will persevere in faith to the end. And the twin doctrine, the sort of other side of the same coin, the preservation of the saints, is the idea that those who are God's people, God is going to hold on to them and preserve them in faith to the end. He's not going to let those people go. God will be faithful to his people, and God's people, those who are truly regenerate, born-again followers of Jesus Christ, will persevere in faith to the end. And I think that's a more helpful way to talk about what we're going to discuss in Hebrews 6. The big idea of the passage, I'm going to give you the big idea. It's very simple. The promises of God and the finished work of Christ are an anchor for our souls. And we're going to deal with the controversial part of Hebrews 6. But the argument towards the beginning of Hebrews 6 climaxes at the end of the chapter. And the end of the chapter gives us this big central thought that the promises of God and the finished work of Christ provide an anchor for our souls. And so with all that said, I'd just like to read the passage. You can follow along in your Bible. Hebrews chapter 6, we're going to read verse 1 all the way through the end, and then we'll pray together. The Word of God says this, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and instruction about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. All this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to, to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God and its end is to be burned. In thistles it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, 
Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the same, excuse me, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desires to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's the word of God, Hebrews 6. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for the scriptures. We come to a, a chapter this morning that people have argued about, disagreed about, debated uh, for centuries. And Lord, we want to come this morning humbly. Uh, we want to come acknowledging that uh, we have many things to learn. And we pray this morning that your word would be clear to us. Uh, we pray that we would think thoughts that line up with not just Hebrews 6, but all of the scriptures. Father, we pray that we would leave today with confidence, knowing that we have Jesus as an anchor for our souls, knowing that your promises, your oath, is an anchor for our souls. Father, do this work in our life this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that's interesting as we go through the book of Hebrews are the chapter divisions. Chapters and verses were added to the Bible many centuries after it was written. And as translators have gone back and sort of worked on the original languages, they haven't always agreed with where the original editors put those chapters and verses. And so sometimes, we started in Hebrews 6, 1, you start with an argument that really belongs back up in the previous chapter. And just for clarity's sake, we're chopping them off at the, the normal chapter divisions. But I want you to just look quickly at verse 1, 2, and 3. These verses all really belong with the argument we ended with last week in Hebrews 5. This idea that God's people are called to press on to spiritual maturity. Remember last week we talked about having lazy ears. The author of Hebrews says, I have things I want to talk to you about, but it's hard for me to explain it, not because the content is so hard, but because your ears are lazy. And he's pressing them. He's challenging them. And he says to them, let's leave the elementary things Let's leave sort of the ABCs of the faith behind and let's press on to maturity. Let's not be content just to stay where we are in our knowledge of the gospel and our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, but let's press on to deeper things and let's press on 
to spiritual maturity. So that's the first few verses. And then you really just jump right into it. Hebrews 6, verse 4, 5, and 6. Verse 4 says, it is impossible. It's impossible to do something. And he picks up that sentence a little bit lower in verse 6. He says, it is impossible to restore them to repentance. And in between those verses, he describes who he's talking about. It's impossible to restore these people to repentance. Which people is he talking about? Well, he says the ones who have once been enlightened, the ones who have tasted the heavenly gift, the ones who have shared in the Holy Spirit, the ones who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then they have fallen away. They've had all of these experiences spiritual experiences, religious experiences, even we might call them Christian experiences, but then at some point they've fallen away. And the author of Hebrews says, and this is the big debate in the chapter, it is impossible to restore those people to repentance. It makes me think of D.L. Moody. He was an evangelist in the 19th century and spent a lot of his life in the Chicago area. And the story is told that Moody was walking down the street of Chicago one day and he was approached by a drunk man And not just a guy who was drunk on the weekends, but a guy who was at that very moment drunk, stuttering over himself and stammering over himself and falling down. And this drunk man saw Moody coming and he said, Mr. Moody, I'm one of your converts. And Moody, one of these guys, always had a, a quick comeback line, looked at the guy and he said, well, you must be one of my converts because you're not one of the Lord's converts. Something has gone awry here. Right? Moody had a, a quick reply and sort of a, a tongue-in-cheek response to this guy. But when you bring it into our lives, it's an important question and it's a challenging question. You and I know people, right? not like some anonymous drunk man on the streets of Chicago 100 years ago, but we know people in our lives who have spent time in church. Right? Their parents might say, we raised them in church. We know people who could recite the basic truths of the gospel, the ABCs, admitting that you're a sinner, believing that Jesus died, confessing your faith publicly. We know people who could do that. We know people who understand the call of the Bible on their life and then who have just simply walked away from it. People who you have memories of. Where you say, I remember those people. It looked like they were walking with Jesus. Some of you might even say they were walking with Jesus. But now they've wandered away and they're not walking with Jesus. And some of them that you can think of and that I can think of in my life have absolutely no intention of coming back and walking with Jesus again. And the question is, what do you do with those people? Do you look at those people and say they were never believers in the first place? Or do you look at those people and say they were believers and then something happened and now they are no longer following Jesus? This is Hebrews 6. This is the idea that the author is talking about here and he's wrestling with it. And I'm just going to be honest with you, it's a challenging passage. It's challenging to think through exactly how he's piecing all these things together and what does he mean by this group of people and what does he mean by it's impossible to restore them to repentance. And the big question that we're going to take away this morning, or we're going to deal with at least initially, is how can you and I have any confidence, any hope, that our salvation is secure in Jesus Christ, 
when you read what we just read in Hebrews chapter 6. I want you to walk away saying, I believe that when a person is genuinely saved, they will always and forever be genuinely saved. And I want you to walk away believing God's people will persevere in faith to the end. That's a true doctrine. It's a biblical doctrine. And I want you to walk away saying God will preserve his people. Those who truly belong to him, he will hold on to them in a saving way to the end. He will not let them go. I want you to leave with the confidence of all of those things. But the question is, how do we deal with Hebrews 6 and what the author seems to be saying? And so I want to make three arguments. Okay, We're going to work through these arguments Then we're going to talk about why he would give us this warning if we believe in the security of our salvation. So here's your first argument. Why should I believe in the perseverance of the saints or the preservation of the saints? Number one is a biblical argument. I want to make to you a biblical argument, and here it is. Many other passages in the Bible clearly teach the idea that God's people will persevere and that God will preserve his people in faith. Many other passages in the scriptures are clear about this. And one of the things we do when we come to difficult passages in the Bible is we compare it with scripture. We use the scripture to interpret scripture. We believe that God's word is true, that it's without error, and so we say we've got to find a way to fit these things together. And I want to just make to you a biblical argument. And I'm going to just mention five passages. These are not the only five. I'm just going to mention five passages passages, and you might want to jot these down. You can look them up later. We're not going to turn there now. Five passages that teach that our salvation is secure in Christ. The first one is John 10. When you look at John 10, Jesus is talking about the idea that he's the good shepherd, right? I am the good shepherd, and I'm going to lay down my life for my sheep, and I'm going to take my life back up. No one is taking it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I'm doing this willingly, In about verse 28 or so, Jesus says in John 10, I'm going to hold my people, my sheep, in my hand. And the Father is going to hold on to these people that I'm laying my life down for. And no one is going to be able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. They're going to be secure in their relationship with the shepherd and with the Father. So I think John 10 is clear. I think Romans 8 especially the end of Romans 8, is very clear that our salvation is secure in Christ. Paul pulls out a long list of big theological words. He talks about God foreknowing us and predestining us and calling us and justifying us and glorifying us. And he traces this argument, and no one is lost along every step of that process. And at the end of Romans 8, Paul gives a final, firm, solid declaration. He says, nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love that God has for us in Jesus Christ. Because of what God has done in salvation from eternity past to the present, nothing will separate God's people from having a relationship with God. Their salvation is secure. I think Ephesians 1 is another passage that you should consider. John 10 and Romans 8, I think you should look at Ephesians 1. In Ephesians 1, Paul lays out the role of the Father and the role of the Son and the role of the Spirit in salvation. And he says, this is what the Father's done to save you, and this is what Jesus, God the Son, has done. And then he gets to the Holy Spirit. And he says, the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing your salvation. The Holy Spirit is like a down payment on what God is going to give you later. It's not something that he's going to take back. 
It's not something that's iffy. It's something that gives you security and confidence in your relationship with the Lord. So I think Ephesians 1 is clear. I think Philippians 1, 6, you just want a simple verse, right? Something that's clear. Paul says to the church in Philippi, the one who started a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. God started the good work in you. You didn't decide to start that. God did that. And he's faithful. And what he starts, he finishes. He will bring it to completion. And if you wanted to look at one more passage, you could look at the book of Jude. We just studied the book of Jude on Wednesday nights a few few weeks back. But at the end of the book of Jude, he talks about God keeping his people. God is able to keep you blameless. God is able to keep you from stumbling. And that moves Jude to worship and to praise and to, to have so, so great a hope that God would be able to hold on to his people. And so those are some passages you can look at. John 10, Romans 8, Ephesians 1, Philippians 1, and Jude towards the end of that chapter. Now look, the folks who say Hebrews 6 is clear that you can lose your salvation, you can have it truly and then lose it, Can I tell you something? They've read all those other passages. They have them in their Bible. They're aware of them. And I understand what the argument is from those who say, no, you really can lose your salvation. The argument from many of those folks often goes something like this. John 10, Romans 8, Ephesians 1, Philippians 1, Jude, all those verses. Those verses describe God and his faithfulness. They don't describe you and your decision to follow Jesus. Those verses say that God is going to hold up his end of the bargain, and it's up to you to hold up your end of the bargain. Those verses say that God is going to come through on what he's promised to do. Now it's all on you to continue following and believing Jesus Christ. So that's sort of a counter-argument, and I just want to be honest with you and vulnerable with you. If that's the reality, if God has brought me to a point in my life as your pastor where he says, Landon, I have held up my end of the bargain. Now the rest is on you. Your pastor's in big trouble. Big trouble. If it's up to my heart my wicked, twisted, warped, sinful heart to hold on to Jesus. And God's done what he's going to do, and now the rest, he's sort of put the ball in my court, so to speak. I'm toast. I know myself. I don't have it in me. I, I don't see how this can elicit any hope, any gospel, any good news for all of the passages that I just told you. If God's going to hold up his end of the deal, but it really falls to me and my heart at the end of the day, I just don't see how that's good news. I just don't see how it gives me any hope. And I'll give you just a a simple illustration of what I'm talking about. One of the things my kids love to do is they love to go to Synergy, and uh, they like to do the ropes course up at the top of Synergy. And so you got all the arcade and the games down below and you got a ropes course. And so you can picture that loud, noisy, obnoxious part of Synergy. Or you can picture any other ropes course that you've been on and been a part of, okay? And you send your kids up on this ropes course. And as a parent, you sit down below and you watch your kids and you think, 
Oh, hold on to the rope. Please don't let go of the rope. Because you saw the little 12-year-old, 15-year-old, 16-year-old guy who hooked your kid up to the ropes course. And you're thinking, I don't think his certification is probably up to date. And I don't know what kind of training that kid received. And I just let him hook my child up and they're going to go on a ropes course and jump off this zip line. And, you know, little Timmy over here just hooked him up. What does little Timmy know? Did he put the harness on right? Did he... But look, you, you watch that as a parent and you think, oh, hold on. Hold on tight. But ultimately, I don't let my kids do the ropes course at Synergy or anywhere else based on grip strength. I'm not sending them up there with the confidence that my second grader is going to be able to hold on to a rope as she flies across the zip line. I'm sending them up there with confidence that the harness is going to hold and the clips are going to be secure and the apparatus in the top is safe. They're secure. And as a parent, I'd still like them to hold on just in case. But I don't think that they're the ones holding themselves up there. And I think this is the same idea you find throughout the Scriptures. Our hope is God's people. And look, John 10 and Romans 8 in Philippians 1, and Ephesians 1, and Jude 1, and a host of other passages, they're written to give us hope. They're written to encourage us. And the encouragement is not ever, you are going to be strong enough to hold on to Jesus. The encouragement is not ever, you are good enough and faithful enough to hang on to Jesus. The encouragement is always, Jesus is going to hang on to you. God is going to be faithful The work that he started in your life, he's going to bring it to completion. He keeps his people. No one can snatch you out of his hand. He will keep his people. He will preserve them in faith, and those who are following Jesus will persevere in the faith. And so I think that's the biblical argument. You find it in those passages I mentioned, and you find it in a host of other passages. Here's a second argument, a contextual argument, a contextual argument. What I mean by that is that the rest of Hebrews 6 seems to highlight the ideas of perseverance and preservation. And to me, this is one of the great ironies of the debate that centers around Hebrews 6. You know, when you, when you have a theological debate, both sides sort of have their proof verses. And I kind of laid out some of mine. I gave you these five passages, I think, sort of prove my case. And The other side that says you can lose your salvation, they always jump to Hebrews 6. I just want to suggest to you that I think Hebrews 6 is on the other side. I think everything else you read in Hebrews 6 suggests that God's people will persevere in faith and God will preserve them to the end. And it sort of reminds me of the soundbite culture we live in. You know we live in a soundbite culture, right? When you watch the news, you get a soundbite. You get a little video clip. You don't get the whole speech, you get... 20 seconds. You don't get the whole context of the controversy or the issue being discussed. You get a a small little soundbite. And media, television, and the internet has trained us to make judgments about people, to make really important decisions based on soundbites. That's probably not the best way for us to make important decisions. Soundbites. And I want to suggest to you that a lot of people treat Hebrews 6, verse 4, 5, and 6 as a soundbite. They forget what comes before it. They definitely forget what comes after it. They focus on these verses and say, look, it's proof. You can lose your salvation. But they ignore the broader context, and everything else in the broader context suggests, no, you can't. 
You're not going to lose your salvation. True believers will persevere and God will preserve His people. So just take your Bible and let's just walk through it quickly. Okay, Hebrews 6, 1, 2, and 3. The expectation of the author is that you are going to press on to spiritual maturity. That's the expectation. Not that you're going to move backwards, but that you're going to actually move forwards. Look at verse 7 and 8. He talks about fields and crops and a harvest. All of this reminds me of Jesus in the parable of the sower, where the expectation is that God's people bear fruit. We don't expect God's people to be fruitless. That's not what we hope and and expect to happen. We have confidence that God's people are actually going to bear fruit in their life. They're going to persevere. Look at verse 9. Maybe the most key verse in the whole chapter. Verse 9, Hebrews 6, 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. What kind of things? Things that belong to salvation. Not things that belong to falling away. Did you hear what the author says? He just gave him this warning. Don't fall away. And then he comes around and he says, but in your case, the people I'm writing to, the people I'm thinking about, I have a greater hope than that. I don't expect that to happen. I expect you to hear the warning, and I expect you to persevere in the faith. What I expect in you is not things relating to apostasy, but it's things relating to salvation. His expectation is that they'll heed the warning. He doesn't think that they're going to fall away. Look at verse 11 and verse 12. He says, I want you to have full assurance of hope. I want you to have hope. Not based on your goodness or your faithfulness, but I want you to have full hope. Don't be lazy. It's not the kind of hope that just makes you kick your spiritual heels up. Not going to be lazy, but I want you to have full assurance of hope. And then the, the section that begins in verse 13 where he talks about God's promises. God's promises to Abraham were not conditional. They were not given to Abraham saying, Abraham, if you can really pull it together here and be a really good, upstanding, moral guy and be faithful to me, then I'm going to uphold my end of the bargain. Do you remember when God made the promise to Abraham? He knocked Abraham out and put him to sleep. And God went through the covenant ceremony and God said, Abraham, I'm making these promises to you. It's a covenant. It's an unconditional promise. It's not based on what you're going to do. It's based on what I'm going to do. And the author of Hebrews, of all the passages he could quote, he goes back to Abraham and he says, God made a promise. God took an oath. God is not going to break his word. It's impossible. Two impossible things. He gave his promise and he took an oath. It's not going to happen. His character stays the same. Therefore, we have hope. Verse 19 and verse 20. He says, we have an anchor for our souls. An anchor is something that gives you confidence. Not because you're so strong and you're going to hold the ship in place, but because the anchor is going to hold you in place. And he says, our anchor is Jesus, the great high priest who went behind the curtain. He went into the very presence of God and he offered the sacrifice for our sins. That Jesus is an anchor for our soul. He will keep you safe. He will keep you secure. He will not let you simply drift away. What I'm saying to you, contextually, everything else in Hebrews 6 seems to point to the idea that God's people are going to persevere and God is going to preserve his people. Everything else seems to point me in that direction. One last argument, a theological argument. Theological argument. 
we are not the decisive actors in our salvation. God is. I just want you to think theology with me here for a second. I don't want you to think of salvation as something that you have the ability to click on and off like a flashlight. I was thinking this week of this idea of sort of clicking something on and clicking it off. It was making me uh, go back and think about the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks. And there's a part in the movie where he's on the island and he's got the picture of his wife and he's got the flashlight and he clicks it on and he looks at his wife and then he clicks it off and he tries to go to sleep. And then he clicks it on and he looks at his wife and clicks it off and tries to go to sleep. And he just back and forth, clicking this flashlight on and off, on and off, on and off. I don't want you to think about salvation as something that sort of you hold in your own hands and you have the power, the ability, the wherewithal to just click it on and off, on and off, on and off. I want you to think about a passage like Ezekiel 36 and 37. You can read it later, Ezekiel 36 and 37. The prophet describes us as people who have hearts of stone. Stone hearts. We have rocks in our our spiritual chests. And the prophet describes us collectively as a great valley of dusty dry bones, cut off and without hope. There is no life spiritually in us. You are not laying there spiritually with a flashlight that you can click on and off for salvation. The Bible describes us as dead spiritually. Hearts of stone, dry, dusty bones. And the Bible says the hope that we have is not that we'll just decide to give ourselves a new heart, but that God will come and give us a new heart. And the Bible says that the hope we have is not that we'll gather up our dry, dusty bones and turn them into something, but that the Spirit of God would blow across His people and bring those dry, dusty bones to life. God is the one who takes action in that. It's not just something that's in our power to turn on and to turn off at will. It's something that God does in our lives. He's the decisive actor in our salvation. Look, the Father loved you when you were unlovable. The Son died for you while you were a sinner. And the Spirit of God gives you life, brings you to life when you're spiritually dead. God is the decisive actor in salvation. And the idea that we can just sort of turn it on, turn it off like you would a flashlight or a switch on the wall is not theologically sound. And you and I have to go back and retrain our minds and think, wait a minute, wait a minute. God is the decisive actor in this. Philippians 1, he's the one that started the good work in my life. I'm trusting in him to bring it to completion. The good shepherd laid down his life for me while I was a sinner. And he said he's going to hold on to me. I'm trusting in him to finish what he started in my life. So there's three arguments why I think you should believe in the perseverance of the saints or the preservation of the saints. But it does beg an interesting question. If God's people are secure in their salvation, why give the warning? Why warn the people, not just in this passage, but throughout the book of Hebrews, about the danger of falling away? And I just want to make two suggestions Why does the author of Hebrew warn his readers about the danger of falling away? Number one, author of Hebrews wants to drive us beyond spiritual experiences to Jesus. He does not want us to be satisfied with spiritual experiences. He wants to drive us and press us on 
to Jesus himself. I just want you to look at verse 4, 5, and 6 again. I think the author of Hebrews is describing people who have had spiritual, religious, Christian experiences and enlightened. Right? They have he describes them as people who have once been enlightened. Right? They have some knowledge about Jesus. You know people like that. He describes them as people who have tasted the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's a strange way to describe it, I understand, but I think what he's saying is they've, they've seen something, they've experienced something, they've been in the presence of something. Maybe like the people who encountered Jesus during his ministry and they saw him perform these signs and they went away saying that he did it by the power of demons and Jesus warned them about the severity of their sin in that moment. Right? They've tasted, in a sense, the Holy Spirit. They've experienced or tasted the goodness and the power of the Word of God and the power of the age to come. I think he's describing people who have spiritual, religious, even Christian experiences, but have missed Jesus. Look, you can get all those things he's describing by coming to this room every Sunday, filling out all the blanks on the outline, singing all the songs that we sing, being faithful in a Sunday school class, and it's possible. I pray it doesn't happen, but it's possible to miss Jesus in all of that. Possible. It's possible for you to sign up for a mission trip to Kenya, to go halfway around the world, to feed children who are hungry, to serve the least among us, to come back and have great pictures and great stories to tell and to miss Jesus in the process. Entirely possible. It's even possible to go on a trip like that and to be moved on some sort of emotional level, to feel like you had some sort of experience on that trip and to miss Jesus in the process. It's possible to participate in every VBS we do, go on every youth camp that we go on, get baptized up in that baptistry, and still miss Jesus in the process. And I think it's interesting that nowhere in verse 4, 5, and 6 does the author of Hebrews call these people Christians. He doesn't call them the redeemed. He doesn't call them brothers or sisters. He doesn't call them the beloved. He does call them the beloved in verse 9 where he says, Beloved, in your case, we don't expect this. We expect something completely different. I know we've been talking in this way, but we don't expect this is going to happen in your life. And I think he's warning us about the danger of being around Christian churchy things and missing Jesus. And for you this morning, that's a point of reflection and just personal honesty. Have I been in the room and sang the songs and filled out the blanks and gone on the trips and been to the camps and done the VBSs and all the rest and missed Jesus? Have I had a fleeting experience of all the things described in Hebrews 6, but I've missed Jesus in the end? That could be you. It's a point of reflection. I think the author of Hebrews wants us to reflect on that, and he wants us not to put our trust and our confidence in spiritual experiences. I think he wants us to put our trust and our confidence in Jesus. So one, to drive us beyond spiritual experiences to Jesus. Secondly, author of Hebrews wants to encourage believers to persevere to the end. And look, wherever you fall on this Hebrews 6 thing, this is a point of agreement for most of us. 
whether you think a person can or can't lose their salvation, I think most of us can agree the people who are going to be saved in the end are the ones who persevere in faith. And that's what he's wanting to see in our lives, in the lives of his readers, people who persevere following Jesus to the very end. To use Paul's imagery, you don't get the prize because you start the race. You get the prize when you finish the race. So finish the race. Persevere in faith following Jesus to the very end. That's part of the terms of discipleship. I imagine you've had the experience I've had in the last, I don't know how many years. You download a program on your computer or you download an app for your phone and before you can use that program or that app, a screen pops up. Terms and conditions. And you see that screen and it says there are 47 pages of terms and conditions you need to agree to before you use this app. And I'm sure you are all upstanding moral people. You print those off and you read them and you get your highlighter out and you make sure you feel good about all the terms. And No, you just click it. You say, fine, I agree, I'm in. I just want to use the program. I just want to use the app. I agree. You can do whatever you want with my information. I give you full rights to my life. Just let me use the app. We, we have that experience so often we've almost been trained to ignore terms and conditions and to laugh at terms and conditions. I just want to set before you the idea that this is one of the terms and conditions of following Jesus and having eternal life. Yes, I believe God will preserve his people to the end. Absolutely. Yes, I believe that the promises of God in the finished work of Jesus are not a flimsy anchor, are not like a maybe anchor, but they are a sure, certain anchor for our souls. But I also understand that the scriptures are calling us not to just be lazy, not to just kick kick up our spiritual heels and relax, but they're calling us to persevere in the faith. And that's why I present both of these doctrines to you at the very beginning. Yes, there's the idea that God will preserve his people, the preservation of the saints. God will hold on to them. But right alongside that is the idea of perseverance. How do I know if I'm one of those people? You just keep following Jesus. You just keep believing the gospel. You just persevere in the faith day after day after day after day. And as you do that, you know God is holding on to me. I have an anchor for my soul. So why would he write these warnings to us? One, to move us past experience so that we trust in Jesus. Two, to encourage us. It's the purpose of the whole book. To push us and encourage us. Persevere in following Jesus to the end.